turn with me, if you would, back to a letter to the Philippians. <clears throat> a letter to the Philippians. We're in chapter 1. We'll be in verses 12 through almost the end of 18 this morning. There's a little tag end on 18 that runs into 19 and following that we won't pick up this morning. As you turn in there, Paul says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me to stress in my imprisonment. What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this... I rejoice. <clears throat> Many of you have heard by now about yet another senseless, tragic shooting in our nation. This one not far from our back door. You don't have to drive very long to get over to Allen, Texas. Many of you have probably been over there and have shopped in those outlet malls where I hear that took place yesterday evening. Um, if you're like me and like many, uh, the repetition of these things begs the question, what kind of world, or more tightly, what kind of nation is it that we're living in? And right behind that comes the question, well, what do we do? As these things happen, we continue to just cycle through those questions. Why, what kind of world or nation are we in? Why does this keep happening, in other words? And, and what do we do about it? Well, as to the first question, why does this keep happening? You need to understand that, that this has been a long time coming. There are reasons, as I stub my toe with my coffee. <laughs> There are reasons why things are the way they are. And we are in the Bible Belt, in Texas, in the South. We are waking up to the fact that things are not the same. They're not the way we thought they were out there. We're waking up to the fact that our Culture, Western culture, our nation as a part of Western culture has long ago, this is not a new thing, but long ago, rejected God and walked away from Christ. It's not a new thing. You've been anywhere outside the Bible Belt in the last 50 years. It's, it's a bleak place out there spiritually. It's not a new thing. It's just landing right now. Uh, more clearly. Uh, this thing began centuries ago. The father of modern uh, philosophy, I bring this up every so often, we just need to know. As we try to think about how do we know that anything is real 
or true? That's one of the basic questions in philosophy. How do we know anything is real or true? The answer of the Bible is in a single word. God. God. And the God who has spoken his truth to us. How do we know there's reality and there's truth? Because the God who made it all has made his truth known. He's made himself known. But Descartes' kind of root thought that he began to work outward from was, I think, if you remember, that's a phrase we know well in our culture. Most of us have heard it somewhere. I think, therefore, I am. It's odd that that reflects God's own words for his own existence. Who do I say Moses said sent me? You tell him I am sent you. Right? Descartes, I think, therefore I exist. How do I know I exist? Because I can't prove anything else out there. Where do I establish the basis of reality? The fact that I am a thinking being. And in that moment, we culturally unmoored the ship of culture from the dock of truth. And there's been a slow cultural drift ever since. That's way back in the 1500s. And this has been coming for a long time. Late 1800s, Western philosophy was stuck on nihilism. Just to give you some terms, we remember that guy, Nietzsche. Right? All the cool kids used to read Nietzsche, right? Okay. Nietzsche's thought there is no objective moral ideas. There's none to base life on. Therefore, there's no meaning to life. How's that for encouragement <laughs> to you? All right. There's no objective morality out there to base life on. There's therefore no meaning to life. That's nihilism. It's all meaningless. On the heels of that in Western culture, early to mid-1900s came existentialism. We all are familiar with the term existential angst. We just call it teenageism, you know. We all go through it. And, and what, how do I live in this world where if there's no objective morality to base my life on, all that's left is... Self. Life is what I make of it. And you got all the grand experimentation of the 60s and the 70s. I wasn't there for that part. Some of us were, though. And they saw it go down, right? All there is is self. Well, when you run out of all that hedonism, what's left to you? Well, that, there's nothing there. And so you get into the 80s and the 90s, and that's where I'm cutting my teeth on thinking and all there is is relativism, right? One of the books we read when I was in college was a book, small little book, but succinctly true for you, but not for me. It's a great title because that was now the nature of thinking in our nation. You have your truth, I have mine. That just doesn't work, practically speaking. But now that I have to figure out my truth, you have all this self-actualization, self 
realization. In Christian bookstores blossomed what's now 80% of some of them, the self-help section there, right? What do you do when none of that works? And where does relativism take you? You got your truth, I got mine. There's really no truth. It's what some people called postmodernism. There's no objective system of truth. And so there's no good system. And so what do you do when you don't have a good system? You, you tear it down. The thinking was there 30 years ago. But all this stuff takes a while to come to roost, right? Those that are young people, when nihilism is popular and that's landing in the culture, well, they got to grow up a little more and have kids and they raise their kids uh, to become great nihilists. But then they raise their kids, right? Their, their kids come up while existentialism is there and they raise their kids as great existentialists. And the existentialists raise their kids as great post-modernist, which is there's no good system, tear it down. And it's, we've had just enough time for their kids to grow up and now what do we want to do? Just tear it all down. This is going to land. It's going to connect to our text this morning. All that's left in our day and what you see is tribalism. You heard that term kicked around? If there's no objective truth to gather us together by, then you find people like you. You can't know me because you haven't walked in my shoes. And so I gather with other people like me and we have to create and maintain a space in which to live our lives in this culture. You think you can do that peaceably, but you already see that doesn't work. That ends up as hatred from one group to another. There's loose alliances where groups align on issues, but as soon as you turn the page to something else, that'll all shift, and those alliances change. You follow all that out, all that's left to folks is viciousness. And that's what you see. And so what about the, purple, the person in our day who despairs? There's no national culture or idea of community to identify with and say we're in this together. There's, is there a God? Nihilism said no. Is there morality to live by? Existentialism said no. Is there a social order that structures my life? Relativism and postmodernism said no. What's left to me in the intersectionality and tribalism of our day says join a tribe, bunker in, cast blame, be angry and violent. But what about when you still feel tribeless? And you feel hopeless. There's nothing left to you but to lash out. Because our culture doesn't know God. And they don't know Christ. And they don't know the gospel. It's the only answer left to people. That's why it's so important for the church not to get locked in to any other answer for all these things out there except Christ. 
To say that the gospel must go forth in our day is not a trite, churchy, Sunday school answer to the issues that ail us. You can't fix them societally without Jesus. You can't fix them politically without Jesus. You can't fix them institutionally without Jesus. You can't fix them any other way except by Christ. It's the only answer for our day. That's all there is. Why is it the way it is? That's a very succinct walk through 500 years, very simplistic, of how we've gotten where we are. What do we do, though, in our day? We have to be careful how we answer that question if we're just talking about person-to-person violence. And when these things crop up, there's most in the church would take. The Old Testament, in particular, provides principles of self-defense. There's a lot of wisdom as to how you go about that. I was over at Denton Bible Church not too long ago. I had my bag that I normally have with me, and somebody said, hey, do you have something in there? I said, I do. He said, here's a card. He said, now, I'm not expecting, but if something happens, I said, I know you guys, I won't help, right? I'll just hit the floor with everybody else, right? Because they don't know you from anybody else, and they're just anybody standing there, they don't know. You get got, right? I I got you. So there's principles of self-defense. There's wisdom about when and how to even do that. There's now it's worth having those conversations. How do we respond as a family if one of us is somewhere near or if we're all near? Like it's worth having those conversations. But the greater question always comes into the conversation. What about when the culture comes after the church. What happens when the culture persecutes us for our faith? Well, the answer is different there. There's no answering violence with violence given to you in Scripture when it's for the cause of Christ. Christ likeness considers any such suffering as something to be despised. It's Uh, That's the wording in Hebrews, not a concern compared to greater concerns. We'll give no thought to that because there's greater things afoot. The scripture tells us and what we're going to see in this text this morning, it connects, is that suffering provides opportunity for the progress of the gospel. We don't look at suffering for the faith as a great concern as Christians. It's merely an opportunity for the progress of the gospel. And so we look at that suffering with joy. It was for joy that Christ didn't consider the suffering of the cross to be shame. He didn't consider it. It's greater things going on. And so how we think about suffering for the sake of Christ is going to determine how we respond if and when It comes from the culture. How we think about suffering for the sake of Christ is going to have a large part to play in how we just think about suffering in our own life, period. Is this suffering about me 
Is it about my life and my way of life and my life changing? Or is it about Christ and about others coming to saving faith in Christ? Is it ultimately about the gospel or not? And so we look together in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Suffering brings the progress of the gospel. The progress of the gospel in suffering. Remember, as we have opened this letter, Paul reminded this Philippian church, he's in Rome in jail, writing back to the Philippian church, and he reminds them that they are all a people saved and sanctified in Christ. They're saints. And he reminded them that in the midst of their own suffering, we find out this church immediately begins to experience their own persecution from the culture because of the city they live in. Uh, And Paul reminds them in the midst of their own suffering uh, that they are to remain unified in Christ there in verse two. And so in the last couple of weeks, in terms of this question of suffering in this letter of joy, how is it we find joy? Where do we find joy in suffering? We find it in fellowship together in gospel ministry. Paul Praise for them with all joy because of their participation, their fellowship in the gospel with him. How do we foster joy? Last week, that begins in true knowledge and wisdom of the gospel, which works its way out in your life in real sanctification. There's transformation taking place. There's blamelessness. You're not stumbling over things like you once were in sin. So that ultimately you are individually and together marked by righteousness, the fruit of righteousness in the life of God's people individually and corporately. There's godliness that is through Christ to the glory and the praise of the father. Where do we find our joy? Not in anything in this world, but in Christ alone and in our fellowship together In him, that's where life and joy is found. And if that's how you think about life, then when it comes to suffering, you got a completely different take on things than what we're given by the culture. That Kool-Aid we grow up swimming in, right? We have to drink something else daily, the word of God, to think about suffering differently. So Paul enters into this new part, the main body of the letter, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, he says, I want you to know something. This is a common device in letter writing. I want you to know, and the writer of the letter would commonly introduce important or interesting information here. Typically, what their circumstances are. Are they healthy or sick? Are they experiencing troubles or prosperity? This is where you tell mom and dad, hey, I'm doing, I'm doing okay. I want you to know, here's how I'm doing. Or I'm not, and you need to know I'm not doing okay. Paul, though, doesn't focus on himself here as he opens the body of this letter. He doesn't start with his own circumstances. It's not about 
the injustice he's suffered in being arrested almost two years ago now is not about the suffering he's experiencing. It's not the lack of freedom that he knows. It's not about the possible looming death and execution he could have happened to him. That's not the point as Paul opens this letter. Now, I want you to know, and what does he turn the focus to? Not his circumstances, but my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. One commentator put it this way at this point. He said, Paul is imprisoned, but the gospel is not. Paul is imprisoned, but the gospel isn't. No matter what your circumstances and no matter how constrained you may feel in your life by what you're going through, the gospel isn't constrained unless you allow it to be. The gospel's not constrained unless you allow it to be constrained by your circumstances. A couple of examples, several years ago when I was still at Denton Bible Church and an intern and just starting seminary there, one of the things I got to do, which has just been a, a formative thing in my life, was for, the, for about a year I got to travel around to senior citizen living situations of all kinds, right? Everything from we've just moved our car and goods in there and this is just a retirement community and meeting in their activity center to assisted living locations to nursing homes to end-of-life locations. Precious lessons learned in those places. One guy will always stick out to me. I'll always remember him because his living out of the gospel began with him moving into the vintage in Denton, which is a assisted living place. They've got a rehabilitation wing behind it. Uh, and he moved in there because his wife had to move in there. He couldn't care for her at home alone the way he used to be able to. She had to go in somewhere where he could get help. So he went with her. That was his way of walking out his vows to his bride. She had to get moved back to the rehab wing, so he just stayed. He could play guitar like nobody's business, and she loved it. And so he'd take it to her day by day, and he'd sit there and he'd play old hymns and songs for her. You know, that gets seen by others. And people ask, and I asked, why are you here? And as he laid it out for me, the thing that just hit my mind and became the message everywhere I went for that year was this. That man was there because of his love for Christ. And he was living it out with his spouse. And so it doesn't matter if you've retired. It doesn't matter if you've moved to an assisted living place. It doesn't matter if you're in the rehab wing out back. If you are taking a breath on this earth, 
you have the opportunity to share Christ with others by your life and what you say. Not long after I got here to Decatur Bible Church, uh, one of the ladies that's been with us as long as I've ever known, Judy Mello. Many of you know her. She went in for a really serious surgery. Uh, We didn't know how that was going to go. And I went down to the hospital to visit her afterwards. And she's dealing with recovery. And you walk in the room and the first thing off her lips, Hey, Pastor Rick, it's so good to see you. I mean, just not like, oh, you know, like just joy. If you know Judy or if you were here when Jackie Carlson was here, you know this kind of just joy. It's real that just exudes. And I sat there for a couple hours just talking with Miss Judy, you know. And of course, you can't sit in a hospital room for very long. You got people in and out and in and out. And I just watched her as they walked in. How you doing, Miss Judy? Oh, it's a good day. My Jesus still loves me. How you doing, Miss Judy? Oh, God's been so good to me today. I've had this and this and this. There was not a soul that walked in that room that didn't hear about my Jesus from Miss Judy. I learned a lesson that day. What it looks like to not have your circumstances constrain the gospel. There are those in the church right now that have recently gone through significant issues, health issues, or other in their lives. Those that in our midst right now are going through significant issues in their life. And they're doing, they've done it, and they are doing it with their eyes firmly fixed on the author and the perfecter of their faith. With their eyes fixed on the hope of a life yet to come in Christ. And they have and are walking with a peace that abounds in them and with a joy that's infectious. And they're giving testimony and bearing witness to the comfort of the presence of God through the Spirit because of knowing this life isn't all we have. It's just the front porch. You're just on the doorstep of life that's yet to come. And so Paul, this is as he looks at his suffering, he sees it, he says, verse 12, as for the greater progress of the gospel. Look in verse 13. The gospel has gone forth to those right next to him. My imprisonment and the cause of Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to those not so next to him. He says to everyone else, we don't know who that is, but those that are extensions of the Praetorian Guard, potentially, probably those that are part of the Roman church in the city. uh, The word is out about how he is seeing and conducting himself in light of Christ in the midst of his injustice and his suffering for Paul as he's locked up with one of these guys day by day. He's not just in the room. You read commentaries and guys talking about how this would go. The Praetorian Guard is that select few thousand that are the personal bodyguards of Caesar. 
And he had appealed his case to Caesar. And so he's awaiting his trial before Caesar. And so he's got the Praetorian guard to guard him until then. And they wouldn't just be nearby. They would shackle themselves one wrist to the other. It's the kind of thing we still do when you're moving prisoners in our day. So he spends his day, could you imagine, shackled by an 18-inch long or so chain to another individual. There's no aloneness. And all the introverts in the church just shuddered. You know, there's no privacy, right? I mean, he has another human being with him at all times. You imagine the suffering you'd be enduring as we would, we would look at it, right? Paul's not looking at it like I'm bound to those soldiers, though. Paul's laughing. Those soldiers are bound to me. They don't have a choice. They're going to hear about my Jesus. And they're going to hear about the gospel. And so over the months that Paul's been in prison there, the gospel has become known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. Many of them which we would think by the way he says this have actually put their faith in Christ. But they've all heard it. Every one of them that spent any time with him, they heard about it. And through those that have put their faith in Christ, the rest of them have heard about it. It's the same kind of thing you see when Paul spends two and a half years or so at Ephesus. It says the word of the Lord went out to all of Asia Minor. Everybody heard the gospel. My circumstances, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. With the result, verse 14, that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. My circumstances have turned out. My suffering has been for the greater progress of the gospel. To those around him, near and far. And in this this sense, the encouragement of others to speak the gospel, the word of God themselves. Most of the brethren. And so he's thinking through those who put their faith in Christ. As a result of his imprisonment, most of them are trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment. There's that way of comporting himself that has encouraged them, right? It's those things that you see in Christian history where they have tracked someone down and they're going to bring them before the crowds and take their life, Christian Martyrs And those words echoed down through the ages. Polycarp, one of the earliest. I have served my God these, I think he said, 80 and six years. And you think I'm going to turn away now after he's been so faithful to me? Nah, we'll bring the beasts. I'll go to them. Where are they? 
right? Another who said, and I don't remember, I'm just pulling some from memory. You can kill me, but you can't hurt me, right? That is our life to come in Christ affecting how you look at right now. You can do your worst. You can take my life, but you can't take my life. You can kill this flesh, but I'll live and I'll be just fine. Do what you will. Those reformers, I can't remember their name. I should be able to, but I can't remember that. I think it was maybe Huss and another guy. I'm going to get it wrong. As they tie him to the stakes with the cords of dry wood below him. And the one looks at the other and says, brother, have cheer. Okay. You know, we'll light such a light today that the candles will never burn out. Right. This is our opportunity to be a light like Christ for the sake of the gospel. That's that's what's going on here. The brethren watching Paul, hearing the gospel, seeing that there's more than just this life. It's not about what we have or get now. It's not about life in this world. It's not about the obtaining or keeping of my life, but it's about living the life I have in Christ today. It's not about keeping life. It's about living out the life I have in Jesus. No man can serve two masters. If you were to Seek to obtain the world and all that's in it. You lose your soul, your life. You give up the world and all that's in it for Christ. And you get your life forever. Right? And so it's encouraging to see this in somebody where the focus doesn't turn inward on themselves and the focus isn't simply about family, children, legacy, except in that I love them well in this time for the sake of Christ, that I leave them a true legacy should this be my time to seek him alone, to follow him alone, because though my husk of a body waste away. My soul lives in the presence of God and Christ. And should you do the same, we'll know that sweet communion in eternity forevermore. That's what's most important. And that's encouraging. It gives them courage to speak the gospel without fear. The gospel is what put Paul in prison. That's why he may lose his life uh, there are circumstances brewing in Rome at this time. It's just we're just a short time away from when Nero uh, burns, as we think today, a good portion of the city and then says, let's just blame those guys. And we have Nero's persecution that kicks off. We have strong evidence in this letter and from Acts that the Philippian church is already suffering for their faith. And so here's Paul 
And his example bears witness to those nearby to speak the word of God, the gospel itself with courage, though it may mean suffering, though it may mean your life. And Paul's inviting the Philippian church to think about these things the same way. Several times, verses three through eight, I have been praying for you all. He says, you all, you all, you all, you all. And here as he starts verse 12, I says, now I want you to know, brethren. That's not just a term for like our loose association in Jesus Christ. That's how we like to think about life and faith a lot of times. I mean, are we brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes. Sunday school answer, right? Yes, we are. But in this day and culture, one of the things that comes out as you're studying this and looking into some things, it's just something I hadn't seen before, but uh, paternal relationship matters most in their day. And so to be a brother and a sister sharing the same father matters most. You imagine marriage. You and your spouse have a greater actual loyalty to your siblings because of your father than one another. That's like inconceivable to us. But that's how it was for them. And so when you say my brethren, you're, he's putting on the table the greatest family relationship they know. That they're bound together by the same father. And they are bound by the same father through his son, Jesus Christ. We are brothers and sisters. And so Paul is inviting them to see his suffering with the same perspective he has on it. And then by extension to see their own suffering in the same way. It's not just about how Paul has comported himself. You're not ever meant to sit back and go, man, Judy. I mean, she's a special case. I could never do like her. Yeah, you can. You can. Man, fill in the blank of the saint you've seen in your life. I could never, I just don't know. Yes, you can. Because it's about where your thinking is on this issue. Is my suffering something to be worked through, overcome, gotten out of, or is my suffering an opportunity to show forth Christ in the gospel? Is it about my life and having my best life now, or is it an opportunity to show forth this life isn't all there is? Our best living hasn't even shown up yet. It's why Paul writes in the New Testament writers say, our life is kept with Christ. And when he appears, then we'll be made like him. And now life, life begins. Do we see it that way? We know it, we've heard it, but do we see it and do we understand it? Do we believe it? Are we putting our feet down on it and are we walking in it or not? And so most of the brethren trust in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God. Paul's suffering has not just been a comfort to him, but it's been a comfort to others because the gospel is being proclaimed. 
And that's what matters. Now, he has a little bit of a note. Verses 14 through 17 all kind of work together. Most of the brethren, because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some of them, verse 15, at the end of it, do it from goodwill. That's those speaking the gospel, the word of God without fear. They do it out of goodwill, out of affection for Paul. They do it out of love, verse 16, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. They have a love for God because of the gospel. That is a love for Christ. That now is a love for those who are Christ and a love for Paul. And so they preach the gospel out of love. Agape. Biblical love. But some Verse 15, to be sure, preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Now catch this. This is some of the brethren. Verse 14. Right? This is some of the brethren. And this is not a situation like you have in a lot of letters where there is some gospel error that needs to be addressed. They are preaching Christ. The message is true. And it's right. But they're preaching Christ, he says, out of envy and out of strife. They preach it out of envy and out of strife. Envy is jealousy. There's something I want that they have. And this word in particular means more to just deprive someone of something they have. And that's good enough. They've got it. I don't. They've got it. It doesn't matter if I get it. They just don't need it. That's a particular kind of spite, isn't it? Right? You just don't need what you have. And there's a lot of discussion here. What is it? And what is this envy? And what is the strife? Strife is just contention out of rivalry. And so what is it that's going on here? And we kind of read a whole lot of things in, depending on what we think is going on in Rome at the time, the Church of Rome at the time. But probably the most astute note that I found was this, that there's this issue in the culture of competition for acclaim in the public arena. Right? This is what you're always competing for, especially as teachers or philosophers or politicians and the like, is acclaim in the public arena. And this is something that we may not connect with, but, but we might. Some of us don't think about these kinds of things at all, and some of us do all the time. Right? Uh, it just depends on how you're wired a little bit, but... There's competition for a claim. And so there's, as somebody comes to have a significant public acclaim, they become targets for others. Now, we do understand that. We, know, we like nothing so much in America sometimes as watching somebody put on a pedestal so we can just rip them right down. Right? <coughs> Makes us feel so good. They're not better than us. And that's, that's kind of the sense of what's going on here. But what they would do rather than like sling mud and slander and vilify is that they would actually say what everyone was saying. They're so great. Look at how they're living. Look what they're doing. And they would say the same thing. The, the public acclaim and affirmations that are being made, they would make. And that's what matches well, really well right here. What is it Paul's acclaimed? so to speak, for, for the gospel of Christ. Can you see how he's living his life? 
You see the message he preaches and how his life matches up with that message and his public acclaim is growing. And so what do you do? You stand up and you say it more and you say it louder. Why? Because in this culture, at this time, that's a way to show everybody, hey, he's getting a little big for his britches, right? And so it's an underhanded way of trying to undermine him. It's a particular way of political gamesmanship. If we can strike those notes louder because of the rivalry within us, we'll all start to back off and his acclaim will go down. And I don't have to say anything bad about the guy at all. I just keep saying all the good stuff. And so the gospel's being preached as a part of that envy and that strife by brothers in the faith. Do you see what's going on? What you have here is a group of believers. The some in verse 15 goes back to those most of the brethren, but some of the brethren are doing this differently. And in some of the brethren's case, the gospel is not about Christ. It's about me, right? Do we have that issue at all ever in our day? Do we wrestle with that ever in our day, right? You start thinking about some of the things we said at the beginning and you think about our tradition and our culture and the philosophy handed down to us culturally. It affirms to us every day in every way possible the centrality of our individuality. I went to the Middle East out of college I didn't know what I was doing. I grew up right here in Wise County, and there were not so many Ewans here with usins at that time, okay? Right? Ewans that are here are part of usins now, don't you worry, okay? Sometimes people are like, oh my gosh, I just heard him say no, all right? There were a lot less of usins at the time. There were more cows in this county than there were people by like orders of magnitude, right? And all of a sudden, I'm in the Middle East. I don't know where. I'm just looking for cows, right? (laughs) Where are they? They don't run cows there. Sheep down in the ravines, maybe, at best. And as I try to start figuring out that place and that culture, I'm just, I'm astounded. They don't think like we do. And you're like, I know. No, I mean, like, really don't think like we do. You ask somebody here, who are you? And what's the first thing out your mouth? Who are you? My name is, right? And you say your name. Okay, that's great. Nice to meet you. Who are you? Now we mean what? Where are you from? What do you do, right? What makes you, you as an individual? You start telling them where you're from and what you've done your whole life and what you do these days and what your hobbies and things are and... Uh, Yep, nope, missed on that one. Next, swipe left, right? Okay, let's go find the next person in Christian Fellowship app. I gotta find points of connection, okay? They're not like me, all right? We're just, we're looking for people like me. And we just keep going. And somewhere back there comes that I'm from Wise County, I'm from Texas, eventually, 
I mean, I'm American, but so are you, right? I mean, that's, uh, of course. Okay. And you start, you know, hey, who are you? And they'll look at you and go, what a crazy question. I'm an Arab. I'm a Palestinian. You're like, okay, who are you? I'm like, well, I mean, I'm not just Arab, I'm Palestinian Arab. Okay, but I'll, fine, but who are you? Well, I mean, my family is from that village for, I mean, like 12 centuries, but the last four centuries, we've been right here. I mean, I don't know if my family's been in America for three generations, you know. Well, but who are you? Well, I mean, this is the work we do in this community, and this is our name here, and like most people know. But who are you? And eventually you get, I mean, my name's Assam. It's completely the other direction. Their identity is completely opposite ours. Their identity is a group identity first. You mess with one of them, you mess with all of them. And that's why it's so different there than here. You're lucky if you mess with one of my cousins, if I'm going to put my gloves on, right? Mess with me, I might not, unless you push hard enough. It's different, right? Our culture... Our culture affirms and celebrates individuality. And so we, we have no trouble with individualistic Christianity, right? We have no trouble then with consumerism in the life of the church. We, we have a hard time figuring out how to walk in corporateness and fellowship with others. We don't see issue with expecting things from the church rather than giving what scripture calls us to give to the church. This is, we have to really change our thinking to see these things differently. We see the gospel primarily through the lens of our own individuality, right? Every time you pick up your New Testament, you read and it says you, who's the you that Paul is talking to or one of the writers, All the U's in there are, in Paul's letters to the churches, they're all plural. He's writing to you. And the things he's saying should be true of you, but they should be true of you. They can only be true of you, and that's the emphasis if they become true of each and every one of you. But it's not, it needs to be true of you individually first, and we'll get there someday. This is the bar and the standard for you. And so we all must conform ourselves individually for the you to be true. Right? We read our Bibles even with just us in mind. We conceptualize our faith as primarily a private affair, don't we? That's why we have a hard time sharing that walk with others. We try to find spiritual health on our own. Some of us view view biblical fellowship with fear and trepidation. We just don't realize how that cultural individuality opens us up to the culture coming in to the life of the church. It's not a new issue. They're just doing it their way in this day. Some are preaching Christ out of love, but some out of envy and strife. We're going to bring Paul down 
a rung or two because this is taking away from our own acclaim out there in the public arena. Now the gospel they have genuinely believed in has become for them and about them rather than for Christ and about Christ. It's no longer for others' salvation and sanctification, growth in Christ. It's about their own attainment of what they want in this life. And that's such an easy thing to fall into. But some, some don't. That's always the encouragement. You do a study of church history and you watch uh, the theology of the church. People just take left turns all the time, your perspective throughout history. But there's always, God always keeps a remnant, always. Elijah thought he was going to bring revival to the land when he has all those prophets of Baal get around the altar. You remember the story? And he basically mocks them, call down. Where's your gods? Do they not hear you? Right? And then God brings fire down. And then the people chase all those guys down and slam. And Elijah's like, yes, revival. And then Jezebel comes for his life. And nothing happens. The revival just, and a whiff of smoke is gone. And he's out to the wilderness and he's on the mountain and God brings noise and thunder and finally in that still small voice, hey, Elijah. And Elijah's got a big old case of the poor me's. Right? I thought this was the moment. It's all I ever wanted. God says, hey, I'm alone, he says. There's no one else. It says, hey, I can count 7,000 that are still there. There's still a remnant. There's always been and there always will be those kept by God in the faith. Always. We don't need to fight for it. We don't need to save it. Right? We just need to be faithful and follow Christ. That's it. Some preach out of envy and strife, but some have far more courage to speak the word without fear, doing it out of love, knowing I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice. There are some preaching Christ out of the wrong motives, but it's the right message. And in this, I rejoice. I'm not going to try to take them down because their motives are wrong. The message, though, the message has to be right. And not the simplistic gospel, but the gospel and all that it entails. There are things that when you mess with them, you mess with the gospel. You're way out on the edge of the theological spider web and you hit one of those main lines and it reverberates all the way back to the center. And you can't change those things. Those things have to be true and right. And as long as those are, and the gospel is preached, we can rejoice. All of this, and we'll close with this real quick. I want you to see it. Paul's, because of how Paul views his suffering. In verse 13, he says, my imprisonment is in, literally in Christ. It's because of it's in connection with Christ. 
It's because of my proclamation of Christ. It's because of the gospel ministry I've been engaged in. I'm here because of the gospel. My imprisonment is in Christ. There's a a note here that he's not making clear, but he'll come to in chapter 3. Right, that he is in this moment knowing the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Christ suffered to bring the gospel to others. And so if I'm allowed to suffer to do that too, I am knowing the fellowship of his sufferings. And what sweeter thing is there than that? That's a mind shift for us. I'm knowing the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. If I'm suffering because of Christ, and there's nothing better than to participate in the sufferings of Christ to bring the knowledge of Jesus to others' lives. He says in verse 16, these that do it out of love know that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. That word to appoint means to lie outstretched. It's used of putting and setting things in a place. It came to be figuratively used of having been appointed to something by God's will. The other place of note you see this is Simeon when he receives the Christ child in Luke chapter 2. says, this child is appointed for the fall, appointed, set, put in a place. For the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Paul says, I, they know I was appointed. This is God's will in my life. There's a longer conversation there. That this is God's will for me. You can hear Joseph saying to his brothers. What you intended for evil. God has purposed for good. Here. And on and on other things in scripture. I've been appointed to this. I'm suffering in Christ. I've been appointed. This is God's will in my life to be a defense of the gospel, not to defend it, but to give an answer for it, to give an explanation of it. And my life is a living explanation of the gospel. When I'm not trying to keep my life in this world, and it's about the life to come in Christ, that explains him. I've got to put words with it too, but I've been appointed to give an explanation for Christ. We are called to do the same thing. The writer of Hebrews says this, two things, and we'll close up. Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. What was that joy? Well, several things come to mind. It's the joy of doing what's right in the Father's eyes. It's a joy of worship. It's a joy of those who would come to be God's people through Christ. It's the joy of fellowship. It's the joy of being enthroned at the right hand of God and others coming with them into the presence of God. It's the joy of eternal life, the state of eternal life. That for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. The concerns of the shame of the suffering paled next to the concerns for the glory that came through it. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, Jesus, so that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate, chapter 13, verse 12. When you 
slew the sacrifice, the animal that was sacrificed for sin, the blood would go to the altar in the Holy of Holies. The body would go outside the gate to be burned. And the writer of Hebrews sees significance in the fact that Christ was crucified outside the gate. He says in the very next verse, so let us go to him outside the camp. If you're going to follow Christ, you're no longer in step with your culture. Let's go to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. It's 1 Peter 4.1. It's this. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And it's this final text, Romans 8, 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. The opportunity for the greater progress of the gospel in our suffering, Paul says, see it as an opportunity. Father, we thank you for your word. It's truths to us, what it has to say then, and as we understand what Paul is saying to the church then, we can see its application to our lives today. Father, we're brought up uh, to think about our own futures. Lord, may we always think about our future in light of Christ, that our future isn't just our adulthood. Our future isn't just our retirement, uh, but our future is the life we have in your presence through the Son who is our Savior because of your grace to us through him and by your Spirit. That's our future. And so our life now takes on a whole different meaning, purpose, lens. We understand it differently. We don't need to maintain life here. We don't have to go looking for suffering, but we don't need to maintain our comfort. This is why Paul at the end of this letter will say, I have learned in all things, whether having plenty or having nothing at all, I've learned to be in all circumstances through him who strengthens me. It comes right back here to his own circumstances being for the greater progress of the gospel. Lord, may we see in the suffering that comes in our lives, no matter why it comes, the opportunity for the progress of the gospel, that we might have peace and rest in Christ and joy, and we might be thinking of still in those moments, those we most love and their growth and their faithfulness in Christ and those that need to know who he is and that with our last breaths, we'll be seeking to share the gospel with others. And so for every breath from now until then, we'll do the same. I pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's sing.